Good morning, friends. It is uh, Rabbi Durbin here um, uh, without Saul Priest, um, as Father Anderson is on paternity leave. As he welcomed in his uh, beautiful and exciting and uh, just just remarkable little baby boy uh, a couple weeks ago. So he will be joining us next week. But we have a very special program today and kind of looking at, uh, you know, the role of interfaith. You know, we, we have something like 75, 80 episodes that we've been talking about. And I don't know if we've really gotten into, you know, the crux of the, uh, what is interfaith dialogue? Why the need for it? And how can we um, uh, use it? And, and at the end of the day, what are the challenges uh, that arise within 2020 and beyond? How do we really try and look towards the future? So I do have with me today a very special guest, Rabbi A.B. Ingber, who is the scholar uh, in residence, the rabbi, um, rabbi in residence at Christ Church Cathedral in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, previously before then, he was working at Xavier University and then was the Hillel um, campus rabbi uh, for Hillel at University of Cincinnati for uh, over 30 years. So it is uh, with great pleasure that we bring uh, Rabbi Ingber on to our program as we uh, discuss the, the um, uh, beauty and the uh, importance of interfaith dialogue as well as the challenges. So I hope you'll join us for that and uh, we look forward to comments and um, uh, any suggestions you may have. Wishing you a wonderful time and we will see you on the flip side. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the program hosts and their guests and are not necessarily those of WSTU, St. Mary's Episcopal Church, and Temple Bait Hyam. Products that may be mentioned are not necessarily intended as an endorsement. Any reproduction or retransmission of this broadcast is strictly prohibited. And now, WSTU presents a priest and a rabbi. Call in with questions and comments at 220-9788, 220-WSTU. Now, here's your host. Good morning, Stuart, Florida. It is Rabbi Durbin here with a very special guest today. Uh, I have joined with me, Rabbi A.B. Ingber. Uh, and just before we bring uh, Rabbi Ingber on to our uh, to our radio show, to our program here this morning. Just wanted to extend our uh, joy and our excitement for Father Anderson, who, uh, for those that are not uh, familiar or aware, uh, welcomed a baby boy into this world, uh, and he is on uh, paternity leave. So I, I, I guess today it is two rabbis uh, discussing their passion, their excitement, and the um, kind of just thirst for interfaith dialogue and how we can um, kind of use this and impress this on the future. So it is with great joy that I welcome to our program Rabbi A.B. Ingber. And just before I bring him on, just to uh, let a lot of our listeners um, kind of understand who and, and what Rabbi Ingber is. Uh, so for over 30 years, uh, Rabbi Ingber served as the executive director of the Hillel Jewish Student Center at the University of Cincinnati. In 2008, he founded the Center for Interfaith Community Engagement at Xavier University and served as its executive director until his retirement in 2018. And throughout his career, Rabbi Ingber has advocated for the rights of immigrants and refugees as an act of social justice and led the way for mutual understanding among those different faith traditions and cultures. He is the recipient of 
multiple awards and honors, and it is my great pleasure uh, to welcome to our program Rabbi Abi Rabbi Abi Ingber. Thank you, Rabbi Matt. It's a delight to be here, and uh, with my uh, position as Rabbi in residence at the uh, Christ Church Cathedral, the Episcopal uh, seat here in Cincinnati, I guess. Uh, you might get away with saying uh, a rabbi and uh, a rabbi who's uh, in an Episcopal church. I love it. You know, it, it, Amy, it, it definitely fits into the theme because our uh, uh, Father Anderson is um, the assistant rector at a Episcopal church here down in Stewart. So it, uh, it seems like we've covered all bases now. Absolutely true. I really am uh, delighted to uh, reconnect with you, especially down to uh, uh, Florida. Uh, just uh, the thought of, of being here with your listeners and the possibility of catching a little sunshine uh, through this audio is really a delight. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll make sure we, 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 we pass the humidity down your way. Thank you. <laughs> so, so uh, Rabbi Engberg, how did you how did you get into when we look back on a you know beautiful and uh, enriching career that you've had for over 30 years how uh, what brought you to it in terms of you know post rabbinical school you know working at Hillel at University of Cincinnati you know why why the where did your passion for interfaith dialogue stem from well, that's a, that's a good uh, question, and I, I think we could likely fill the entire podcast uh, with, with that answer. Uh, uh, the short answer, and then there's the long kind of uh, deeper emotional answer. So let me just start with the, the, the short one. Uh, I loved the interfaith work and uh, multi-ethnic and multi-racial work that I did while I was the Hillel rabbi or the rabbi serving the Jewish community uh, on, on campus. Uh, I, I would do my, so to speak, expected work as the rabbi and then loved stealing an extra 15 or 20 hours to do work with the Muslim community on campus, to do work with campus ministry, to do work with the African-American uh, community on, on, on campus. Those were things that uh, just uh, elevated uh, each and every day, each and every week. And so when I retired from my uh, Jewish campus ministry work, uh, the president of Xavier University at the time said, uh, are you really free? Now, uh, what that meant uh, to most people was, could you really go from being a, uh, a fan of University of Cincinnati basketball to uh, becoming a fan of their arch rival, Xavier Musketeers? Um, mm. That wasn't, of course, what he was talking about. He wants to know really whether I would stay in town or not. And uh, I thought I would uh, go to the, uh, a small town on the uh, East Coast and uh, do some teaching. And uh, when he said to me, what would you like to do? That was an opening I just could not refuse. And so the thought of establishing a Center for Interfaith Community Engagement to really take people uh, from a desideratum of just tolerance to the possibility of celebration was something I could not resist. And so mm. for a decade, that's what I did, uh, retiring and now, obviously, uh, just on a part-time basis, a rabbi, a rabbi in residence at Christ Church Cathedral. So that's the, the simple uh, professional side to the story. Mm. There is a, a greater emotional depth to it, but we can do that perhaps a little later on in the hour. Sure. 
And 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 what's the interfaith community like in in Cincinnati? I mean, I assume it is a well-established interfaith community. Uh, so yes, uh, it is a, a, a quite well-established uh, interfaith community. But uh, my fear is uh, here, as perhaps in uh, many other places around the country, that uh, interfaith is. Uh, an opportunity just for people of different faiths to come together, perhaps to find some uh, commonality of social justice and to um, be comfortable that that is in a sense enough. And that's uh, arguably what I wanted uh, to reject. Mm -hmm. I I don't think that uh, just because I see a person of a different faith community, in in my case, a a clergy person of a different faith community at a meeting or we uh, go together to create some social justice opportunity or petition the city or the governor or whatever together. uh, Yes, that brings us in proximity. Uh, Can I learn a little bit about that person's faith? Yes, I can. We can actively pursue that. But it doesn't take us to celebration of the other. And uh, that is where people need to come into each other's homes, uh, not for any purpose other than coming into each other's homes. And what I taught my students and faculty and staff at, the, at Xavier University was that uh, we have to begin with encouraging exploration. That's exploration of self and then exploration of the other. And only through that can you really begin to build some uh, genuine bridges. And once those bridges start to be foundational and important in people's lives, then you build community. Mm -hmm. And so just commonality of purpose, unfortunately, gives us the situation that we're in, which is, wait a minute, I thought uh, I supported you on this here, you should support me on that. That's not uh, Mm -hmm. negotiations that take place in a loving uh, relationship. Those are negotiations that take place in a transactional or utilitarian relationship. Mm. Have you have you found that that your perspective or the ability for you to challenge your own previous you know knowledge or experience with it has has developed over time in terms of looking back over you know a a, a beautiful and illustrious career. To be able to say, wow, you know, today in 2020, I would have approached that situation in the 80s or the 90s. I would have approached that a little bit differently. And, you know, how how has interfaith conversations and dialogue and interactions, how has it shaped your rabbinate and um, the process to which you, you know, experience, you know, experience the world? Wonderful question. And I would say the, the, the easy answer really is if I had the knowledge or wisdom I have now and uh, the energy of the youth that I had then, uh, look out world. But that isn't, the, that isn't how things are given to us. And so here, let, let me just uh, back up my life a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's probably true for uh, many of the listeners. An awareness that your life doesn't really begin when your life began, but rather you inherit uh, the opportunities, the failings, the difficulties, and the blessings of the parent generation. Both of my parents were birthed in the Holocaust. Uh, What that means is all four of my grandparents, two of my uncles, were slaughtered during the events of uh, World War II. They were Jews in Poland. 
My parents uh, met in a displaced persons camp after the war and uh, were able to finally come to North America, to Canada. And uh, I was born uh, in Canada and I could have grown up with a hatred of the other. I certainly could have grown up with hatred of the uh, Christian world that had uh, in some uh, significant part over 2000 years uh, celebrated in the utilitarian aspects of anti-Semitism. But that isn't how my parents raised me uh, against the depravity of what they had seen in their own lives, running from the Holocaust, seeing their own parents uh, murdered that against that depravity, they preached the possibility of dialogue against the um, uh, hatred that they saw in their own lives with their own eyes and feeling in their own bodies, they preached love. And part of it was my mother's experiences where her life was saved behind enemy lines by six righteous Christians, one appearing miraculously after the other to save her life. And so as a child of Holocaust survivors, I I grew up with that conflict. I mean, do I hate because of what happened or do I move past that hate as my mother and my father had done to love and to know that the only way way to build a world that would not impact their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, in that way is to build a world of understanding and a world of love. Mm-hmm. Now, did I, did I learn that day one of my life? I did not. Did I learn that in the first 20 years of my life? I don't know. My guess is that it entered into my being, but it took quite some time for me to be able to affect a way to bring that into reality. And mm-hmm. I will say that Uh, over the course, and I'm very fortunate, over the course of my professional career, I think I've genuinely touched my students, touched faculty, touched staff, and been touched by them and their experiences. And uh, so much so that from being born in an immigrant uh, Holocaust survivor community in Montreal, Canada, where the thought of a crucifix in a a hotel room or a a dormitory somewhere would have been abhorrent for me. I'm literally the rabbi in residence at an Episcopal church. Mm. Oh no. Did I lose you? All right, I do believe uh, we've had some technical difficulties, but I do believe Rabbi Durbin is back with us. Go ahead, Rabbi. Yeah. Do we hear? Or am I still frozen? You're good. Good. Okay. Rabbi Ingber? Yes. Yep. Okay. Sorry about that. It's uh, the, the, the joys and, 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 and tribulations of, of, of trying to do an audio Zoom radio show uh, with, uh, uh, internet that cuts in and out. Um, so Rabbi, I just, just, just really curious. Cause I, I, I was very moved by 
you know, your 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 personal experience, given given the the uh, loss of the Holocaust, the pain that that must have inflicted. Did 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 your parents talk about the Holocaust when you were growing up? So my father uh, certainly did, but I would say, uh, perhaps uniquely, I not only learned about the destruction of Jewish life in Eastern Europe. I also learned about the celebration of Jewish life in Eastern Europe. So his uh, stories began and arguably ended with uh, the joy of uh, sliding down uh, hillsides in a small little village in uh, southeastern Poland during winter days on a sled. Mm -hmm. uh, the 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 awe that he experienced walking into the synagogue building, the, the, the big synagogue in the village built by a, a Renaissance, a Italian Renaissance uh, architect with walls that were nine feet uh, deep. Uh, the walking to school, carrying his shoes because the family was so poor and only putting his one pair of shoes on his feet when he hit the steps walking into school. The joy of uh, going out with his sisters and picking uh, wild blueberries and bringing them home for his mother to bake into a blueberry uh, pie. So I, I grew up with those stories. I also grew up with uh, stories of his being chased through the streets of the village and being called a dirty Jew. Mm. But uh, it was all contextualized. And it's in that contextualization that I came to understand that the Holocaust was not just about the murder of six million Jews. It was not just about the murder of my family members. It was about the death knell to what life was like. Mm -hmm. And uh, every time that I have taken uh, university students back to uh, Poland, back to the uh, death camps, I always make it a point before we have those experiences to spend a week looking at how Jews lived so that the numbers are not what counts at Auschwitz, but rather the humanity of the people who were brought to Auschwitz and to their death. Mm. And so my father shared all those stories. My mother did not. My mother uh, really refused to speak about her experiences. They were uh, harrowing. And uh, she, however, gave us a great gift. And that is that she told my father about her experiences. And so my father would uh, tell us her story about the ghetto walls being built, about her volunteering to try an escape route and uh, making that choice not to be a heroine, uh, but rather in order to save the lives of other young people in the community. And wow. uh, both uh, with fortune and also tragically, uh, she literally was the last Jew to escape from the ghetto in her home community. And in August of 1942, 17,500 Jews, men, women, and children, over three days were marched out of the ghetto and slaughtered. She was the last survivor of that ghetto. Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. And so, Rabbi Ingber, in, 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 your, in, your, in your perspective and in your, um, um, throughout your travels, when you've taken students to Eastern Europe, 
Um, uh, you know, presumably they're both Jewish and non-Jewish students. Have you seen more of an impact perhaps on the non-Jewish students or more of an impact on Jewish students when you experience, you know, go to um, concentration camps like Auschwitz or Dachau or, you know, ha have you found it, it that it resonates deeply on both sides or perhaps maybe, you know, uh, the non-Jewish students feel it more, more deeply? I don't know if that makes sense. It, it, it does. And I would say it depends on um, how you go. So if you've done uh, significant work in preparing people for the experiences, then I think all the experiences uh, wash over people really almost the same way um, that individuals see themselves uh, not as the possible heroes, but as the victims. And, and that really is the only way to have that experience. Mm -hmm. If you just uh, hop on a plane, get off the plane, then I think there is a uh, inequality between how, say, somebody who was raised Jewishly and somebody who was raised in another faith tradition. Mm -hmm. But let me illustrate that perhaps a, a little differently. And that is from the time that I spent uh, in Darfur refugee camps. So uh, after the uh, genocide uh, in Darfur, I had the privilege to go for about 10 days, uh, uh, primarily in three uh, Darfur refugee camps. Uh, and I touched the hands, I imagine, probably of uh, at least 1,500 people. Wow. 1,500 uh, refugees from Darfur who in all likelihood had never seen uh, a, a white person before, forget about Jew, uh, and uh, certainly had never touched that person's hand. Uh, young uh, children were rubbing uh, my forearm thinking they could kind of rub off the white to see the black that's underneath. And uh, one of our uh, early days there, we met with about 30 or so uh, young people uh, in one of the camps in Gaga. And uh, these were people who were helping with the psychosocial services, uh, all uh, refugees. And one of the young uh, refugees, Hassan, uh, got up and detailed his uh, story, uh, just a, a horrific uh, story of uh, having been with his brother outside of the tiny little village, uh, collecting uh, twigs and, and wood. And uh, he heard uh, shouting and, and shooting and saw fires and he and his brother started to run back. They saw their mother uh, being uh, raped, their father being killed and they managed to escape. Uh, the village of course was burnt to the ground with everybody uh, uh, in it. And uh, Hassan, Hassan uh, shared this story. I, I was tremendously moved and, and recall, of course, that he spoke in Masalit and then uh, that had to be translated into Arabic. From Arabic, it had to be translated into French and from French, it had to be translated into English. Because I was raised in Montreal, my French was good enough so I could shortcut uh, one of the translations. Mm. But Hassan finished the story and I was, I had gone to Darfur, uh, in the refugee camps, in order to capture the story so I could come back and perhaps a little bit like George Clooney, 
to share the stories to build some uh, momentum of uh, potential rescue for these individuals. And when Hassan was finished, I asked if I might share a little piece of my mother's story with him. And so I did, in, in a sense, that with the brevity of what I shared uh, with your listeners today. And Hassan looked at me and then in uh, with translation, he said, I never thought I would hear a story worse than mine. Wow. And what he meant was he never thought that a white person could ever have a story of destruction, personal destruction in their lives that rivaled his life story of destruction in a little village in uh, southern uh, Sudan in Darfur. And I was so moved by that. And really, every single day that I was uh, in a chat on the border of Darfur, uh, we were together. And I uh, continued for years to support him in his education and in his opportunities. And my guess is that if he was on this show, he would be talking about a uh, Yehudi, because the Arabic word is the only word that he would know, uh, named uh, Ibrahim my uh, Arabic name, uh, who came into his camp and shared a story that was like his. So we all have these stories. Not all of them have miraculous endings, but we all have these stories. And to open yourself up to encounter the other is really the greatest blessing that uh, God has given me in my life. Oh, yeah. Amazing. So for, 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 for our listeners, we're just going to take a quick break. But if you have any questions for Rabbi Ingber, any any perspectives, uh, any 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 comments, please give us a call at 772-220-9788. That is the station here at WSTU in Stewart, Florida. And when we return, kind of go a little bit deeper into the interfaith world and, you know, uh, perhaps with, with Rabbi Ingber's experience and with his uh, with his passion, you know, uh, what are some of the greatest uh, successes that we have within the interfaith world? And perhaps what are the biggest challenges and how do we in 2020, how do we move forward from that and really embrace and really bring in others that are on the periphery uh, that we can really bring in into, into our community? So uh, please join us. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And then when we return, go a little bit deeper into the world of interfaith dialogue. You're listening to a priest and a rabbi podcast. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and please leave a rating and a review, five-star rating and a positive review if you can. We certainly appreciate it. That is the best way to make sure that others out there just like you can find this podcast. If you want to get in contact with Father Christian and Rabbi Durbin, you can do so by emailing a priest and a rabbi at gmail.com. And the absolute best way to get a hold of the fellas is to call into the radio show. This podcast airs live on the radio every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on WSTU 1450. And you can listen live online at WSTU1450.com. And if you want to join the show, you can call in to 772-220-9788. That's 772-220-WSTU. 
Hey everyone, this is Father Christian here on A Priest and a Rabbi. So happy for you to be here on this podcast with us. And I want to let you know that I have started a YouTube channel called Your Favorite Christian. And you can check it out on YouTube. And every Monday I drop a new episode. And it's always through the lens of faith, but taking on different topics such as dating, relationships, marriage, pop culture. I've done one recently where I went out to the art show and talked about how do we find our relationship with God through all the what all the latest artists are doing. Um, last week was what do women really want um, in a man uh, and interviewing different people to be a part of that. So uh, please check that out on YouTube. Subscribe, like, share, uh, put on the notifications so you get that every Monday. Um, I also want to let you know of uh, we this podcast wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a generous donor from St. Mary's Episcopal Church who wishes to remain anonymous. All he asked, though, was that um, the information gets out that St. Mary's Episcopal Church here in Stewart has a healing center. And so you can call if you're looking for a counselor, someone to be there for you during a challenging time, and you can call the church at 772-287-3244. We also have a group of Stephen ministers who have been trained over 50 hours of training to be with you and walk with you during a time of crisis. They are not counselors. They are trained just to be more of the presence um, of, of Christ or and, and walk with you during a time of crisis, whether it's a, a good crisis of having, oh my gosh, my daughter's about to get married, or if there's something a little bit heavier. So give us a call, 772-287-3244, and I thank that anonymous donor who uh, makes this all possible. All right, God bless you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. morning and welcome back Stuart, florida we are back here with a priest and a rabbi walking to a radio station and it is my pleasure to have on our program today rabbi av ingber who has really dedicated his life and his uh, career to uh, working with a multiplicity of different faiths and really trying to uh, experience and, and 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 gain knowledge and insight into uh into all faiths uh working both at University of Cincinnati at Hillel, and now um, also at Xavier University, and now at um, at, at Christ Church in in Cincinnati. So, you know, to go back a little bit, you know, it, it, it's been an interesting it's been an interesting wave. Um, um, you know, for, for for those that may not be familiar, I was trained as a rabbi in Europe. Uh, I spent four years in London, a year in Jerusalem, and then a year in New York City. And, and, and one of the things that my college, Leo Beck College, uh, has done and, and actually done really successfully um, is what we call JCM. And JCM has been around for about, and I hope my college is not listening because I, I probably will get the dates mixed up, um, about 40, 45 years. And JCM is an acronym for Jewish Christian Muslim Interfaith Dialogue. And um, they meet in, in, in a selective city. In the past, they've met at... Uh, Koblenz near Bonn, near the former capital of Germany. Uh, they moved to Dusseldorf. They, they, they do these, 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 it's an eight-day interfaith conference where literally hundreds of Jews and Christians and Muslims throughout continental Europe and uh, Western Europe come together to immerse themselves in understanding and learning about each other. Um, and I remember being very moved by it um, um, uh, years ago. And thinking to myself, I think there are things that Europe is doing where North America are miles and miles apart. Um, and, and, and Rabbi Ingber, I'm just curious to, to hear your thoughts 
on on you know the way interfaith dialogue has been over the last say 30 years and and where you think it's going and and and, and how how can we how can we make it a, a a stronger entity uh in our very challenging world thank you rabbi matt i i i think that um part of the conversation and, and you hit a hint at, at something that's uh never kind of came to me before and that is a difference perhaps between uh europe what's going on and what's happening here in the united states I think in Europe, with uh, the waning of religious identification, that little piece of being religious becomes a significant part of one's identity. And so I think that the possibility of conferences, and I'm not saying that everybody just comes to the JCM conferences from uh, Europe, of course, but mm -hmm. the importance of religion as part or faith as, as part of a person's identity is uh, is celebrated among those who still have that as part of their identity and ignored by uh, everyone else. I, I will say that when I've had uh, speaking opportunities um, uh, uh, in Europe, that has definitely been the case. I think in the United States, we see that religion and the expression of faith is something that potentially divides. So whether that uh, dates back to the days of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the religious majority, so, so to speak, uh, and the righteousness associated with that, uh, or self-righteousness associated with that community, or Will uh, Herberg's uh, uh, Protestant Catholic uh, Jew, where or somehow the Jew was elevated into being a, a third of the American populace. I think we've gotten a lot of it wrong, and we see uh, religious interfaith dialogue as being almost purely uh, utilitarian. I think what will be interesting is what happens now with uh, our response to the pandemic to COVID-19 and these days of uh, withdrawal and isolation. Uh, people are giving expression to how terrible they feel that they cannot come back into their churches, into their synagogues, into their mosques. And that's a return to the normal, and that normal doesn't really include significant interfaith uh, interactions. And I'm not saying that that won't come again, but that isn't what people want. They want to be back with people who are exactly like themselves. And interfaith dialogue, its blessings and its greatest successes have come from people who want to learn and grow about themselves, but in the company of others and to see themselves reflected in that way. So I think we are in for uh, quite a challenge in that respect. And again, I come back to uh, arguably the, the difference between a tolerance of the other, which we can aspire and we get, we've done that quite well at the end of the 20th century, and celebration of the other, which is so very, very difficult. And let me just perhaps share a couple of words uh, on, on that. In order to be able to celebrate the other, you have to find something within yourself that you celebrate. In other words, the issue is not in, say, my conversation with colleagues and friends who are uh, from the Islamic tradition. The issue is not 
what can I resonate with in a particular surah in the Quran or in the Hadith, uh, life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, or in how they give it expression, but rather what does celebration taste like for me? And then when you say that when you do something in your tradition, that tastes like celebration, I know what celebration then tastes like. So it's less, a little less content and more that feeling and that the emotion that comes from that. And here I'm inspired very much by a friend who uh, was a, a chief of the Northern Cheyenne, so in the Native American mystical uh, tradition. And every now and then, so maybe every six months, maybe every eight months, uh, Dennis picks up the phone and calls me. Now, I would say that when somebody else in the American sphere picks up the phone and calls me and I haven't talked talk to them in uh, six to eight months, or in our case, six to eight years, that I worry that something has happened. And so you respond by saying, is everything okay? With Dennis, chief of the Northern Cheyenne, that isn't why he calls. When he thinks of me, he picks up the phone and actualizes it. And I have learned how to embrace that little piece of Native American spirituality in my own life. That's that celebration that comes with the genuineness of interfaith and multi-faith responsibilities. And, and, and with, with your experience, I mean, if you go back, you know, decades where you first started your career, are you still in contact with, with some of those, say, say um, priests or, or pastors that you that you started your career out with? Well, you open up the door to a, a little story if, if you will allow. Absolutely. Uh, one of my uh, dearest uh, and, and early friends at the University of Cincinnati, so this is back in the late 1970s, was a Methodist uh, minister. And uh, we became quite close, uh, his wife as well. And um, because my mother had gone through the experiences of the Holocaust and her life had been saved by righteous Christians, I know that psychologically somewhere in my being, I knew that being uh, alone and isolated in, in Cincinnati, Ohio, now with four uh, young daughters, that I really kind of wanted psychologically to know that there was a righteous Christian who would open their door to me and my daughters in the middle of the night if, God forbid, something happened. Now, I knew that there's no way that was going to happen in Cincinnati, Ohio, that it was a ridiculous thought, but yet in my psyche, there's no question that that's what I desired. Mm. And one day it dawned on me that Reverend David was absolutely that person. And I couldn't wait to get into the office. I called him up and I said, David, 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 you got to come up to the office right away. And he said, in typical Methodist style, I'm having my cup of coffee and uh, smoking my pipe. Uh, I'll be there in half an hour or so. And I said, no, this is really important. Get in here. And he came up to my office, walked into Hillel. I sat him down on the couch and I blurted out in some very expressive fashion that I knew that he was the righteous Christian who he and his wife would open their door to me and my four daughters in the middle of the night and give us shelter. And he looked at me and he said, of course, mm. what, what else did you want? 
And I thought, are you kidding me? I'm <laughs> crying, I'm bawling, wow. you know, tears are rolling down my face. And for you, this is a given. And he said, yeah, is that all? Of course. And when I went home to sleep that night, put my girls in bed, and I knew that I would sleep better that night than any night of my life because this burden had been lifted from me. Wow. And as my head hit the pillow and I was ready to embrace this peace that comes from knowing your, in a sense, protector, redeemer, savior was at hand, I thought, hmm, I wonder who knows that they can knock on my door in the middle of the night and mm. that I would let them in. And my entire life since that moment has been dedicated to make certain that people knew they could knock on my door. That's, uh, that's incredible, amazing. And we, of course, uh, are still uh, very much in touch. Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's, a, I mean it's, a, it's, 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 it's a beautiful image or wonderful image is, is, is that is that relationship that you both fostered to be able to have that comfort level to be able to communicate to one another you know I think I think the content of what you of what you talk about I, I think is actually really challenging God forbid something happens in the middle of the night who do we feel comfortable with with no shadow of a doubt to be able to make us feel safe and secure and I think that that's um especially in today's world, it's, 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 it's challenging. I think it makes us really search back into ourselves of what is most important for us. What, what, what are the qualities that we require of ourselves and, 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 and of others? It's, wow. And I think for those of us in the, uh, you know, with the privileges of, of, of what we have in our lives, who can knock on our door? And so just a couple of years ago, uh, when the first expressions against uh, what are called dreamers uh, came to the fore, I went to two of the dreamers who were on Xavier University's campus. I certainly knew uh, both of them. And uh, independently and without uh, you know, any individual witnessing what I did, purposefully, obviously, I said to each of them, listen, I, I live a, a mile and a quarter from campus. If God forbid, uh, somebody comes to come after you to uh, put you in prison or uh, potentially to begin proceedings uh, to deport you from this country, I, I know you're gonna run home. I mean, that's not a question, but if somehow you cannot, I just want you to know that my home is available to you. You will have to literally go one and a quarter miles from Xavier University's campus, and you, I will give you shelter in my home. And not only that, I will tell you that Kim, who is my life partner, she is a great cook. We will do your laundry. You can stay for six hours. You can stay for six days. You can stay for six months. And mm. each of them independently looked at me with tears in their eyes and they said, why are you doing this? And my answer was so simple because somebody did this for my mother. Mm. Amazing, amazing. You know, um, Rabbi Ingrid, just wanted to, to kind of go back uh, a little bit because you had mentioned something about with interfaith dialogue that it's, it, it's really not good enough to just kind of have those platitudes of, look, I'm engaging in dialogue. I'm talking with somebody that may be different or 
share differing opinions and worldviews of what I am. <clears throat> you know that 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 understanding that you know we need to go beyond just that 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 comfort zone, that 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 comfortable space, and 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 actually put kind of words to action. Um, and 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 just very moved. I have a I have a colleague of mine that's the uh, associate rabbi down in, um, in, in Philadelphia. And he had said that, um, you know, over a while, you know, the, the, the community would do a big MLK, you know, um, big MLK celebrations. They would bring in the Jewish community. They would bring in the, 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 the African-American community. And then suddenly they just recently, within the year or two, they decided to stop. And, and I remember having a conversation with, with, with a friend of mine about this. And he said, you know, it's because we, as the leadership, kind of have this understanding, we want to stop putting people on display. It's not good enough to just show, um, you know, uh, Jews and, 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 and Christians and Muslims that, 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 that we're in solidarity, that we actually have to work for it. And I was, I was moved by, 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 you know, through your uh, experience of, of, of working overseas and working in African communities and trying to help, you know, and, and, and I'm sure you're familiar um, uh, with one of my favorite, favorite arguments out of the Talmud um, that says, you know, what is more important, study or learning? And of course, as we know, uh, and I think I may have mentioned this before on the show, but you know, for our listeners who may be familiar, you know, Rabbi Akiva says this and Rabbi Tarfin says this, but ultimately they come back with, you know, study is in fact um, important if and only if it leads towards action, that we actually do something um, positive and, and impactful to be able to make a difference. Have you found through your experience, how in your experience have we moved from kind of just those pleasantries and those uh, abilities of, of, I mean, for lack of a better word, those sound bites or just those photo ops to actually move towards let's collectively do something impactful? I, I think that that's really uh, the key and, and I, I'm glad you verbalized it in, in the way that you did, Rabbi Matt. We just really have wanted for so many decades to, to create the photo op or the sound bite. Now, not only that, it gets arguably worse because we wanted uh, the utilitarian uh, effect of that. So we show up at a Martin Luther King, we meaning uh, white Jews, let's say, uh, show up at a Martin Luther King uh, uh, rally uh, or uh, event or observance. And in return, we want unbridled support, let's say, for Israel issues. Uh, we show up when there is uh, uh, basically uh, crimes committed against the uh, African-American uh, community in police forces uh, around uh, the country. And in exchange for that, we want uh, unbridled uh, support and understanding when anti-Semitic acts happen. You cannot enter into the genuineness of a loving relationship when the purpose is not something that comes from the genuineness of that love or, as, as you phrase it, from that study. I mean, we have to move to something far, far deeper than that. And part of it is during this uh, COVID uh, situation. Uh, I have uh, called up um, really every day. I try to call up uh, a different, uh, older uh, friend. 
and to inquire as to their well-being. Can I go to Walmart, get a grocery order for you? Can I bring you something? What help do you need? Or just to know how they're doing. And sometimes those individuals that I call are Muslim. Sometimes the individuals that I check in with are African-American. Sometimes uh, the individuals I check in with are out of the Episcopal uh, church. Sometimes the individuals are friends in the Jewish community. That isn't why I call them. I call them because of the depth of the relationship that I have with them. Mm. So I don't call my uh, Islamic friend to see how he is doing. I call my friend to see how he is doing. Now, mm. do I uh, pepper that conversation with uh, quotations from uh, uh, Rumi and other uh, Sufi leaders? Well, of course I do, because that's something that we share in, in common but no different than I might pepper the conversations with a Jewish friend with things that we share in common. Mm. That's the depth that we have. And the easiest uh, way to achieve that is to open our doors and invite people to sit around our table. When we uh, embrace others in our American community, we say, uh, let's go out for dinner. We should not do that. Obviously, we're learning something right now, and nothing against the restaurant industry. What we should be saying is come into our home. And I've had some of the uh, most distinguished and arguably least distinguished citizens of, uh, of the Cincinnati area who, of course, through our home. We have had people from everywhere in the world community sitting around our table. Uh, when my daughters, as they were filling out college applications, were uh, confronted with the SATs uh, of uh, tell us what diversity looks like, their answer always began with our dining room table. Hmm. Wow, that's beautiful. And, um, you know, Rabbi Ingber, just to just kind of, I, I know we are running out of time. We just have uh, just, uh, just under 10 minutes. Just wanted to kind of look at it from that perspective in terms of, you know, now with this new reality of, of the coronavirus and COVID-19 and how our communities have had to respond, in what way and how has um, Christ Church, how have they, how have they responded um, and, 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 and how has it filtered its way through you as rabbi, scholar, and residence uh, in an Episcopal church? How has that how has that um, either filled your 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 uh, ability as rabbi in a church setting? How how is that how has that manifested itself in terms of you know I mean we've all been in quarantine for uh, I, I don't even know what day it is right now um, you know for so long that the response and I, and I like what you said before which was you know look I, I think our response is whether we're in a COVID nineteen crisis right now. Uh, a, a national, international health crisis, or whether we're not, it's, it's, you know, I don't, you know, to reach out to somebody and say, I'm, I'm thinking about you, I'm worrying about you, I'm always here, uh, not to look at it from religious lines, oh, I'm calling my, my, you know, my Muslim friend Muhammad, or I'm calling my Christian friend Christian, or, you know, my Jewish friend uh, Moshe, you know, it's, it's, I'm calling out of relationship, I'm calling out of relation, I'm calling out of genuine care. What, what's been the response from um, um, the, the church? 
Uh, I, I've been incredibly uh, impressed by Christchurch Cathedral. I, I, again, I, I don't want to suggest that perhaps what they're doing is exactly the same as every other Episcopal uh, church in, in the country. I, I will say I know this one and I know this one quite intimately. Uh, the web page was completely redesigned to make it easier not to find information, but for people to be brought into it. Uh, just an, an incredible new uh, redesign that is is easy. It's and it's and it, and it's welcoming. Uh, I have started uh, at the request of the church uh, what they call a happy half hour with the rabbi every Thursday at uh, two p.m. I teach what you and I would call the Torah portion. Uh, what in Christian uh, tradition is the first reading. So I teach the uh, text. Uh, lectionary from uh, the Episcopal Church that will be read from Hebrew Scriptures on Sunday morning. So this uh, coming Sunday is uh, Good Shepherd Sunday, and not surprisingly, it's Psalm 23. So uh, for about 40 minutes, I taught Psalm 23 from a traditional Jewish rabbinic understanding to uh, there were something like 70 people who signed up for this uh, Zoom uh, session, about 35 uh, actually came on, including the bishop of uh, Southern Ohio uh, of the diocese. And uh, I, 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 I will say that Bishop Bridenthal was an incredible uh, honored and, and welcomed guest and, and shared his insights in really the beautiful kind of ways. Now, the first time we offered this, which I guess was uh, four weeks ago, there were two people in the Zoom uh, uh, opportunity. So that has grown in a way that has become a hallmark really of the church. Uh, every day, a different member of the clergy offers a reflection, something from this environment that is capturing their attention, a particular prayer or commentary or whatever. And here's the Episcopal Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, Christ Church Cathedral. And Monday at noon, releases a reflection from Rabbi A.B. Ingber. Mm. It's, it's amazing to see how COVID has brought, in a sense, to the fore, maybe even in capital letters, the genuineness of the expression from Christ Church Cathedral. Wow. And, and, and Rabbi Ingber, is this something that, you know, once, once, once we can actually be physical and be uh, amongst community, amidst community, is this something that, that you feel you'd still like to continue, kind of like that thought for the week um, as we go forward? I, I think that's a good question, and, and I don't know what the answer is. I, my guess is that the membership would be very excited to continue it. Um, I don't know that the clergy want uh, an additional thing every single week into sure. what will be a resumption of their normal routine. But certainly I will be teaching because I, I think that there are increasing numbers of individuals within the church, uh, within the church's membership and, and obviously the clergy, who are loving the opportunity to look at a text through rabbinic eyes. Mm -hmm. And of course, I love the opportunity to grow through uh, the Episcopal understanding of uh, both the same text as well as the text out of the New Testament. Oh, well. Well, we, uh, we unfortunately are running uh, out of time. Um, I, I want to express my, my, my great gratitude to Rabbi A.B. Ingber for joining us today. Uh, I will say on a personal note, 
um, that it was really through, uh, and I think Rabbi Ingber, I think we met um, probably around 15 years ago or so, uh, when my my father-in-law was uh, was at um, University of Cincinnati, and we had the chance to kind of talk and to to develop a relationship. And I was I was very moved by by your just just the work that you've done and that you did, and the passion and the excitement uh, that you brought to the profession. Uh, it is something that um, you know I hold very dear to my heart. Um, because it is something that I think we as a Jewish community, we as a interfaith community uh, really need to, to do, which is to, you know, move beyond the platitudes, move beyond the, you know, the, the it's great that we're all one people in one community, but I think that we need to work at it. And I think that we need to really be cognizant of, you know, the impact that we can make on a variety of different peoples uh, to really come to the same message, which is it, it, it's about love. It's about understanding. It's about coming together to try and bring some semblance of peace and wholeness and, and, and just calm within our world. Um, so I do want to thank uh, Rabbi A.B. Ingber for joining us today. Um, again, any questions, any concerns, please shoot us an email, um, like us on Facebook. We are a priest and a rabbi. Um, we have, I, I'm not even sure how many uh, episodes we have right now, 75, 80, something like that. But I hope you will join us. And for all of our listeners, we wish you a wonderful, a restful rest of the week. And we will see you next week.